Hey there, I'm Mike. Some of you know me from the Twisted Cape. Some of you know me because when there's trouble, you call DW. But regardless of how you know me, you know I love comics, and that's what we talk about on this podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Mike's Big Stack. Oh, hell yeah, my thickies! Welcome to the show, everyone. Recording this week at the Center for Thickness Control. We've got a few things for you before we get to the city shoutouts. All the clues are out from Mike's Thick Stack Attack number one, and those clues are in the titles for episodes 20 through 24. Get your submissions in, and you'll get mailed a sweet, sweet prize. Next, make sure you follow us on Twitch and watch either me or Jesse, but most likely me, play Marvel's Avenger. The link to the Twitch channel is in our show notes. Now, here come your city shoutouts. For starters, we're live in the 215. Hello, Philadelphia. Thanks to our new Milwaukee listeners, we hope to keep you around. My hometown Ambler keeps showing up for us. Thanks, guys. Hey, Manassas, Virginia, we appreciate you. And last but not least... Where Brooklyn at? They're listening to this show. As always, we start by reading the thickness of my stack, so get on the floor, do the worm while we check out Mike's Thickometer. Oh yeah, Mike's Thickometer. Thick like whipped cream on top of an ice cream sundae, this week clocks in at a 6 out of 10 on Mike's Thickometer. With thickness like this, your chilly fall nights will be warm and cozy. This week would have included Green Lantern Season 2 Number 7, but like New Mutants last week, I'm busy catching up on it, and there will be likely a catch-up episode on that in the very near future as we rocket towards the end of this season. I don't know why they do seasons, but whatever. In case you're curious, this stack this week leans to the DC side for the second straight week. This week, we begin with the Marvel books, starting with Amazing Spider-Man Number 48. I gave this a 3.5 out of 5. This issue surprised me a little. It's all about Pete's internal struggle about how he addresses Sin Eater and his pursuit of Norman Osborn. It's a prisoner's dilemma. Stop the Sin Eater from killing or neutralizing Norman Osborn, or save Norman Osborn knowing that he's among the worst of the worst and will continue that behavior. There are a ton of guests in this issue. Miles Morales, Spider-Gwen, a.k.a. Ghost Spider, Jessica Drew, a.k.a. Madam Web, Spider-Woman, Silk, and Aranya. Largely, they try to get through to Pete about what he should do, and seemingly the consensus is that he should let Sin Eater do what he needs to do to Norman and then stop Sin Eater. It seems that they all acknowledge that no matter what, Osborn will always revert to who he is ultimately, the Green Goblin, who's a murderer, a mass murderer at that. Pete makes his decision as Norman is being run down by Sin Eater's acolytes who have been juiced up by Sin Eater and steps in to save Norman. The rest of the spiders assemble at the end of the issue, seemingly set to stop Pete from saving Norman. I love it when creators put characters like Spidey in impossible situations like this and see how they make their way out, and it seems like that's what this story really is. I don't know that I love using Sin Eater as a plot device to bring back Green Goblin, but we'll see how it all shakes out next week. Again, I love Mark Bagley, but I'm not sure his style is what's necessary to tell this particular story. Next up, we have Captain Marvel number 21. I gave this a 3.5 out of 5. As an Empire wrap-up, this is a nice story, although it probably should have been w- released a week ago, in my opinion. 
Lariel fights a group of Kotati and rescues Kit uh, from last week. She gets into a bit of trouble when she gets outnumbered, but then Carol and her crew show up to continue the battle. In that battle, Carol loses the Accuser's hammer and Doctor Strange's spell basically wears off. Lariel picks up the hammer and becomes the Accuser and helps turn the tide of the battle. After the Kotati are defeated, Carol takes the hammer back and goes to join Teddy and the rest of the Empire team to finish out the series. The book ends with a sweet moment between sisters as Lariel has officially become Accuser. That will be coming up later in this episode. And they bond over their mother's grave. It's sweet and sad at the same time. I like how they keep putting Carol in a position to lead, especially given her military background. I'd like to see her back in charge of an Avengers team soon as, as well. I think the art was solid. Nothing remarkable stood out to me, nor did anything really look bad. I think the star here was the writing for this particular issue. All right, these next two books are going to be co-Marvel books of the week, and they're both Empire wrap-ups here. So first, Empire Aftermath Avengers, number one. I gave this a four out of five. As the name implies, this is the aftermath of Empire, but it doesn't start there. We start by seeing how Teddy's grandma, Raquel, survived. Then we go to the, the big wedding of Teddy and Billy, and then the reception. Of course, this gets wild because there's no superhero wedding without drama. The Marvel Trinity reflects on how they treated the Young Avengers back in the day and how they should have treated them. And then they toast to Marvel. There's some really great conversation in there, particularly between Tony and Cap uh, around registration, and it's just great. As for the drama, Abigail Brand gets mad about Carol not notifying Alpha Flight and slaps her in the face in front of everybody. In my mind, it's one of those record scratch panels, and the creative team really felt the same because the next set of panels is shock from multiple people. There's a shot of L'Oreal getting really mad and holding her hand and preparing to go to battle. She tells Carol about herself directly in her face and loudly and her actions and then leaves and simultaneously quits Alpha Flight. Bringing up the tension of this moment, which is pretty serious, the Korean scroll priests for the wedding offer to get the laser glaives and let them do battle. Basically, like uh, the Dothraki in Game of Thrones, saying that, you know, it wouldn't be a wedding without somebody getting to a fight and or being dismembered, uh, which is great. The party really continues and we get a nice uh, Young Avengers reunion. And if you've been following that team ever, it's, it's always nice to see them all together. Shortly after, Teddy exercises his Emperor abilities by making Clert, the Super Scroll, a diplomat. He's basically a warrior, so that's punishment for him. And he tries to do the same for Captain Glory, but he refuses and just becomes a prisoner for their roles in what Rakil did in activating the, the machine to wipe out the sun. The book ends in the future with Teddy and his empire in ruins, and Abigail Brand standing over him saying that she warned them about this and tells them, let's go. I like an event that leads into something else, and getting to see direct repercussions of earlier actions, and it seems like there's going to be some cosmic fallout, which I'm excited for. I thoroughly enjoyed the art in this issue, tons of characters, expressions, detail, just really good work. Now for my second co-Marvel book of the week, Empire Fallout Fantastic Four number one. I also give this a four out of five. Much like the Avengers issue, this focused on the wrap-up, and included a lot of the Unseen, a.k.a. Nick Fury, if you were in since, like, 
or Original Sin, I believe it was. This issue starts with a reunion of all the Fantastic Four and their extended family, and they start to work on what to do with Koi and the weapons that the Kotati had. Reed calls in the profiteer who was holding Jovan and Dekala, forcing them to fight in the casino way back in, I think, Fantastic Four Empire number zero. She agrees to take a look at the weapons to discover their origin because they're far more advanced than any they've known. Meanwhile, Thor, Susan Richards, and Franklin all take the Kotati to a faraway planet that is barren to leave them there. Thor causes the planet to blossom with powers he got from his epic side quest and gifts it to Koi and the Kotati, which really makes me wish that Thor's tie-in didn't get canceled because this is clearly impactful. Meanwhile, loose ends back from incoming, it was from last year, are, are taken care of by mixing the ashes of a Kree and Skrull warriors who really started this entire thing. Spider-Man and Human Torch have a long overdue conversation about Human Torch's soulmate, I suppose is what she's supposed to be, which is always great. Possibly the best pairing in comics to me, these two guys. Profiteer reveals that the weapons are ancient, like older than the Elders of the Universe ancient, and that she's taking the crystal batteries that power them as payment, along with the kids who were rescued at the beginning of all of this, Jovan and Nicola. She produces a document basically saying that they are legally hers, and the Avengers and the Fantastic Four are having none of it. They just prepare for battle. Teddy steps in and basically nullifies the agreement because the Kree and Skrull are one people now, and then drops her a by Karen which is a power fucking move. I love it. Teddy then allows the kids to be adopted by the Fantastic Four, specifically Alicia and Ben. Everyone leaves, leaving the weapons behind, which is irresponsible as fuck to me. You were just under attack from all of these incredibly powerful weapons. Even though the batteries are gone, holy shit, it is a massive mistake to just leave them unmonitored on the moon. But I digress. The Unseen takes a look at them and realizes that they're from the first race. Then Uatsu, the Watcher, who's been dead for quite some time, see Original Sin, is reborn, saying that there will be a reckoning. I'm incredibly intrigued by this, as well as the other Empire wrap-up book. It feels like they're building for, towards something massive, a la Crisis, which is exciting. Alright, final Marvel book here, Marauders, number 12. I give this a 4 out of 5. This issue is great because we take the time to reestablish who Kate is. From the moment of her rebirth, with the mutants that she's rescued on the Marauder and seeing Storm again, to her moments on the beach with Emma, to her big return party, it's Kate through and through. There's a couple of pages with Kate and Kurt reuniting, then Ileana, then an amazing set of pages with her seeing Sebastian Shaw. She gets an Irish exit, uh, a la Ileana Rasputin, and then go gets food and a tattoo. She kisses the tattoo artist, who is now tattooed, kill Shaw on her knuckles, and then gets pointed to the harbor. The crazy thing to me is we don't know what Kate is planning for Shaw, because it was a psychic conversation between her and Emma, which was left off page, but we do know that it made Emma very happy, which means it's likely crazy. The book is like watching someone play multiple high-speed games of chess for me. This issue had a shift in artists, which I'm not sure that I love, but it could grow on me. All right, after this break, we're going to jump into these DC books, put the championship belt on. Right. 
Hey guys, this is Jesse at the Twisted Cape. We just wanted to take a moment to thank all of you amazing listeners of both the Twistcast and Mike's Thick Stack for your support over all these years. Just a friendly reminder to subscribe to our shows on your favorite podcasting platform because we're everywhere. Also, don't forget to like and rate the Twistcast wherever you listen. We do love our five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. Don't forget to tell us what you like about the show in your review as well. And now, back to the show. Oh yeah, we're back. You doing the worm? I hope you were doing the worm. The worm's fun. Wiggle, wiggle on the ground. It's good, it's silly. Kids might be looking at you funny, but just, as long as you're enjoying yourself, it doesn't matter. Okay, back to the DC books. We're going to start with Batman and the Outsiders, number 16. I gave this a three and a half out of five. This is a solid issue, with the highlight being the showdown between Jefferson and Raish. But there are other significant moments as well. From the end of last issue, Batman and most of the Outsiders show up to take on Raish, but he sends his flock after this team, and he goes after Black Lightning. He tries to get Jefferson to flip and to serve him, but it doesn't go well for Raish. Jefferson gives him the chance to stand down, gets refused, and after Raish makes a fairly pointed threat at his personal life, Jeff has a Dragon Ball Z-style moment and blows Raish off the roof, but later admits to Batman that he isn't dead. He didn't kill him. Batman tells him that he deserves to stand alongside Clark and Diana with his power level, and that he needs to inform them of a decision when they return to Gotham. Meanwhile, the rest of the issue centers on Orphan just dismantling this flock that Raish had hand-chosen in a legendary set of panels, many of them wordless. Best way to tell a story sometimes is to let your artist go ham, and that's exactly what happened here in this story. Some of the best panels of the week are really in this book. The writing feels like the end of a story and possibly the end of the book. It was another fun read, but sometimes the dialogue was a little bit choppy and broke up the flow of the issue. Next, we have Dark Knight's Death Metal, Trinity Crisis number one. I gave this a four out of five. I do like how this story turned out so much that this is a co-DC book of the week for me. Trinity Crisis basically spins out of Death Metal number three as the DC Trinity alongside Jaro, Harley Quinn, Swamp Thing, and Jonah Hex work to get back with the heroes and the world of Lost. The story centers on the Trinity looking to focus on three specific crisis events. Infinite Earths, Final Crisis, and Infinite Crisis. Despite not being a direct main issue, this issue is important for the overall series here for sure. There is a heavier, more helpless tone in the story, but it isn't without its moments of levity, largely from Jaro and Jonah Hex. This issue sees Diana make several impassioned calls to action for the rest of the League, specifically the Trinity, to not give up hope and keep victory in their minds. Swamp Thing takes in the rest of the Green, making him more vulnerable than before. If he dies, then so does the Green. They discover Barbados chained up, and they have a, a little bit of conversation, and Superman gets a punch in on his face, which is great. There are sacrifices made in this issue as well. Jonah Hex is killed by the Robin King, who has a utility belt made with items specifically to stop each hero. Harley, Jaro, and Swamp Thing run, leaving the Trinity stranded as they try to collect crisis energy in the dark multiverse. The difference is that when they arrive, the moments have been changed, and in each of these moments, the Trinity has lost. One of the things I love about this book is how Scott Snyder has paired with an artist he worked with before on Justice League, and it looks pitch perfect. I have zero complaints about the art in this book. The story drifts mildly at times, but otherwise remains tight, which is why I liked it so much. 
Now, Flash 761, I give this 3.5 out of 5. This issue is pivotal to Josh Williamson's run because it pulls back the cover on a ton of stuff. First thing about this issue that I have to call attention to is the cover. Sometimes DC, more than most publishers, misleads readers with its covers, and it can be quite irritating. That said, this issue is more about the Flash family and Thawne than it is about Barry. Max ends up summoning a bunch of speedsters through the Speed Force, and the younger speedsters figure out that they need to change the vibrational frequency to, to send the reverse Flash family back to where they came from. Meanwhile, Thawne takes the opportunity to monologue, revealing a majority of his plan. Here we see some of the brilliance of this run. Thawne has been using the negative speed force to subtly influence moments across the DCU that involve flashes. From the button, to flash war, to moments in Teen Titans, to heroes in crisis, Thawne has been manipulating flashes the entire time. There's a moment here that incorporates Wally and death metal as well, making Thawne realize that things have changed. It seems as if Barry is going to kill Thawne at the end of the issue. I did like most of the story decisions in this issue, but a few things like bringing Iris back and forth and using the future to tell parts of the story set this back for me a little bit. I've been about this art for the book for a while because of its kinetic style and distinct visual fights complemented with lightning. It seems like the end of this could be as big as I initially hoped. Next up, we have Justice League Odyssey number 24. I gave this a 3 out of 5. I love this book and all of its craziness, especially the spacefaring nuttiness and now the unbelievable amount of time travel. In the beginning of this issue, Darkseid has essentially taken over with the help of Hacks from last issue as a double agent and declared himself the new Lord of Time. Meanwhile, the Odyssey League enacts their plan to bring in help from the past using Epoch's crystals as Darkseid tries to enlist Gamma Knife, who is technically no longer alive, time travel, and Dexstar. Meanwhile, Corey, Azriel, Vic, and Jess are all brought in from the past with memories of what has happened to help them fight Darkseid. Darkseid activates... Darkseid activates the revision mechanism with a detailed plan of rewriting the universe, and the League goes to stop him. As much as I personally enjoy this, I can't say this issue truly stood out, especially this week. Bringing back the original team was a nice touch, though. The book is solid from an art perspective, with both some excellent panels and splashes, and some that leave me wanting just a little more. Alright, Nightwing number 74. I gave this a 4 out of 5. Here's my other co-DC book of the week. I love the implications of this book. At the heart of this issue is B, Rick's girlfriend, who is looking to get her man back. This issue picks up from last issue's cliffhanger outside of the hospital with Tim and Jason. There is a struggle for Dick's soul at the core of the fight here. Between Jason, Tim, Babs, and B, they all do a ton to try to cure Dick of his brainwashing. Specifically, Babs, who takes the crystal from Joker, who's nearby, and B, who sets him up to recover who he is. It works, and we get our classic Dick Grayson back, and it's about damn time. The Bat family is once again as whole as they can be, but it has seemingly cost B everything in her pursuit of reclaiming her boyfriend. I did love how this issue developed and incorporated more of the Joker War tie-ins than the main Batman book does. 
At times, I was not a fan of the facial work in the art, specifically the weird Joker-controlled dicky boy, I guess we'll call him, or Tim Drake, basically looking like a small child at times. It's almost like they wanted it to be Damien, but they didn't adjust for other stories. I'm not sure. Next up, I have Superman number 25. I gave this a two and a half out of five. This issue was a truly puzzling read. It's largely split between what seems to be a new threat called Sinmar and Clark's childhood friend Lana Lang. The stuff with Sinmar, the aliens not the character, centers on a neighbor of Krypton watching it explode and doing nothing when they see the rocket go by and then just basically keeping tabs on Superman's life from afar inspiring them to create their own Superman, which they simultaneously succeed and fail at? Either way, Lana takes the time in this issue to relive portions of her history as it relates to Clark and Superman and her time as Superwoman as she preps to interview him for the Daily Globe. Go into the competition, Clark. That's damn dirty. She clearly realizes that she missed out by not dating him earlier in their lives and seems a little sad that she never took that step with Clark. Overall, this issue seemed to be a bit of a jumbled mess to me and really avoided anything truly interesting despite the extra pages afforded to the milestone issue. The reason it didn't score lower is some of the incredible art in this issue. There are some splashes that are simply breathtaking. Alright, moving on to our final book here, Wonder Woman number 762. I gave it a 3 out of 5. This issue catches Diana and Max Lord up on things that we've discovered as readers over the last couple of issues. Max Lord is innocent and begins helping Etta and Diana, despite their misgivings about accepting his help. They work to clear the hotspots of hypnosis of people across the city. The villain, Max Lord's daughter, reveals her name at the end of the issue. Her supervillain name, that is. Liar Liar, which seems kind of stupid to me, but that's neither here nor there. Liar Liar is using the members of the military to enact whatever her plan is while keeping Max, Etta, and Diana distracted. As Diana and Max are dealing with the situation at a diner, Liar Liar intercepts them with several mind-controlled members of the military police and Etta with guns drawn under hypnosis. This read quickly and easily, but the story feels like it's waning, and that's not great. The art is nice, and there's a cool double-page splash in the middle of the book where Diana's deflecting bullets. I'd like more of those because they're cool moments, but i also like it to feel more impactful. Alright, no interview this week, so as we start to wrap up, if you want to be on the show, hit me up on Twitter at SpiderMike29. Looking ahead to next week, it's a big Marvel week if my sources remain accurate. On the DC side, we'll get Batman number 99, Teen Titans 45, and a massive Detective Comics number 1027. On the Marvel side, we get Amazing Spider-Man Sins of Norman Osborn number 1, as well as our Marvel Trinity with Captain America number 23, Iron Man number 1, and Thor number 7. Submit those guesses for Mike's Thick Stack Attack number 1. Also, there's a real possibility that you get two to three bonus episodes from me next week. It'll be sweet! There may be an X-Men catch-up, on a couple of titles there may be a green lantern catch-up and there might even be another show of classic stories in order to the regular mike's thick stack episode i'm looking to spoil you baby make sure you're a subscriber to our youtube as well that's all i'll say about that for now that is all the time we have for this week of 
course, make sure you have subscribed to The Twisted Cape on your favorite podcast platform, or just go straight to thetwistedcape.com and listen to the podcast there. We're at The Twisted Cape, no spaces, every social media platform. Facebook, The Gram, Twitter, and YouTube, like I said earlier. Make sure you tune in to our weekly Wednesday show on our Facebook page or on YouTube. Again, keeps showing up. It's a theme. And leave in them comments. We go over them during and at the end of each show. Finally, feel free to shoot us feedback on this show to thetwistedcape at gmail.com. And make sure you use the subject line MTS. Thanks for tuning in. So until next time, let's get dangerous. Stay safe. Wear a mask. Stay twisted. Fix that.